All right, Josh Smith here at my studio, live from Flat 5, and today we're talking to one of my favorite people in the whole world and one of my favorite guitar players and musicians coming at us from the great state of Wisconsin, everybody, the legend that is Greg Koch. Man, dude, I'll tell my story about how I first heard you play. I think it was at Mars Music, maybe, in Florida, uh, for Fender, <laughs> like a clinic. Uh, I don't want to speak out of turn. You might have had a fanny pack on. It's possible you were wearing a fanny pack before you got on stage. Uh, I don't think I would have had a fanny pack. <laughs> I've, been, I've been guilty of various fashion faux pas in the past, but I don't think a fanny pack is one of them. But please continue. It's, it's you, anything you had possible. a cool shirt tucked in. You had a necklace, I think, like a gold necklace. Uh, and, yeah, the hair was stupendous. And you got up on stage, and you did like a Fender spiel, and then you played. And, man, I just remember thinking, this guy may be an alien. And that's, that's what, that was the, th the thought that I had as a kid. And then I remember seeing you at NAMM over the years. And, you know, and then, but then I think the first record I heard was maybe the one with Malford. Uh, as possible, okay, yep. the first record I heard. And, man, it was like, oh, wait, this is that guy I saw do Fender Clinic, that motherfucker on guitar. Okay, good. He's a real musician and artist. He's not just, a, you know, the Fender guy. Sure. And, man, y your playing has just blown me away ever since, and I'm so glad that we're bros now, and it's always fun when we get together to play. So, dude, thank you for coming on and uh, having this oh, conversation. Oh, my pleasure. I'm a huge fan of yours, and it's uh... – it's definitely been cool getting to know you, and every time we get together and play, it's just it's just like the unimind takes place, and uh, and people dig it as well. They sense it. They sense yeah. the camaraderie, the musical congress, and so well, we got to do more of that. We will. I think we have to do more of it, and I think you and I, even though we're from you know slightly different generation, I think there's a lot of shared experience between the two of us and the things that we like but also like how diverse that, that swath of things are that we like, but we don't let that mess up our love for like the things that, that are our favorite, you know? We're, and we're yes. not afraid to bring those things into our little world. I think we, we, we don't have all those walls that separate stuff, you know, between the styles, but yet we still love just blues and jazz and rock and roll, you know? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I'm not afraid to blur the lines of... Uh of uh of idioms that's for sure i think you know in in the past especially when i was younger that was probably something that uh may have uh, prohibited my um uh, artist side of my popularity if you will but it's certainly something that helped me in all my other things that actually helped me make a living when i was right. you know a young guy with young kids and needed to pay the bills well all that stuff came in mighty handy when fender came calling and Hal Leonard came calling and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely it's just one of those things. Right now, I'm to the the age of you know once you get past fifty, your your <laughs> your ability to to give a shit about much kind of uh, uh, well, let's just say you prioritize what you give a shit about. And now I just kind of play whatever I want. And as to your point, it's like it's it's all of that stuff mixed in. But at the end of the day, it's like you know I'm a blues rock kind of with a little bit of jazz and country in there, fella. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and. And we're not afraid to let our influences. What's funny is coming from in the world that we're in, I would say we're some of the more, you know, without tooting our own horns, whatever. We're, we're some of the more diverse guitar players in our world. But then, like, on the other side of the spectrum, like, when I moved to L.A. to be a guitar player, there's the chameleon guys who can play everything. 
and but they don't necessarily have as much of personality. I realized I wasn't that guy though. Well, maybe I had listened to the same breath of music they had and brought it into my playing. All of a sudden, I couldn't just sound just like someone from that style. It all still came out sounding like me. So it kind of right. helps us in our own little world. But it, it hurt me sometimes in the session and sideman world. It's it's weird how that works. I understand. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just the great struggle, the balance of this, that, and the next thing. And you know, like when I was younger, I guess I, it would bother me a little bit more. I would get very bothered by, uh, oh, he's just a blues guy. I am not. Or somebody <laughs> guy, that's not blues enough. It is too. <laughs> Dude, you literally just summed up the last thirty years of my life. It's either he's just a fucking blues guy or that's not really blues, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. All right. So for the people who don't know Gregory Cockery, who put the guitar in your hand the first time? How, how did it just, you know, become part of your life? Uh, well, I actually I wanted to play guitar from a very young age. Um, I can remember as far back as third grade when music lessons were offered in grade school. I really wanted to play guitar, but like cello was available, right? So I, I played cello. Um, it wasn't until I was around 12 when a friend of my sister's had a El Degas gut string acoustic guitar that I was allowed to just procure. Uh, and I remember the guy across the street uh, tuned it up for me. And uh, I remember I learned an A chord. And I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, Cocaine, but Eric Clapton's version of Cocaine was on the radio at the time. And I remember I just took an A chord and went just over and over and... <laughs> You know what I mean? And I thought, this is the coolest shit ever. Yeah. Uh, and I bugged and bugged and bugged my dad that I wanted lessons. And he was quick to point out, he's like, let's do a quick review of your musical past. There was the cello that I rented and got rosined and books and lessons and all that kind of stuff. And that ended in shame and tears. And then a few years later, when band came around, I played percussion kit and bell kits or whatever. And that ended kind of similarly, so he was not up for it. But he had a he had a um, a client of his who was a guitar player. Actually, played in a society band around town, uh, the Steve Swedish Orchestra. And this guy, uh, Harry Bauer, was his name. He played a little bit of mandolin, a little bit of guitar, a little bass, a little banjo, and then I think he was a plumber by day, right? So, okay. uh, but he was a client of my dad's, and so he said, my dad said. The moment this kid turns up for a lesson and he isn't prepared, it all ends. So I started taking lessons from Harry, and like six months later, he's like, I can't teach this kid anymore because I was just, I was ready. I just practiced nonstop, and I was ready to go. It's amazing how quickly the hook gets set. Like when something just turns you out like that, there's no, I mean, I, it was the same for me. I got, so my parents brought me home a guitar at three, but at six, I started taking lessons, and it, you couldn't, you couldn't take the guitar out of my hands. You know, it, it just was the way it was. And that, you know, it, it, man, it's crazy how it ends up defining your entire lifetime, you know, just from this yes. chance meeting of, of, you know, who even knows why my dad brought home the guitar? Or do, you, do you know what was the reason the guitar excited you when you saw, why did you want to play it? Was there, was there something that, you know, excited well, you? Well, you know, there's... <laughs> You know, delusion and dysfunction, of course, always pay, plays a role. And uh, when I was very, very young, um, you know, my uh, my brother and I had to room together because there were five girls in between. He was the oldest, I was the youngest. 
And I was subject to all of his records. And he played, you know, he was really into Hendrix and Cream and uh, James Gang and, uh, you know, Beatles and the Stones, uh, Grand Funk Railroad. But, man, I'll tell you what, when he, the atmosphere changed when he played Hendrix and he played Cream. And there was just such a reverential vibe about it. And when you're a little kid and your brother's the oldest, one of the only other males in the house, you look up to him. And yeah. if he's showing reverence for these freaking guitar, I remember this one time running in, you know, playing guns or something with my one of my buddies. And we run into the bedroom, and he's kind of sitting squat style in front of the the, the little speakers of the record player and playing Live Cream Volume right. One. And I'm like, "What is that?" And he goes, <laughs> "Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, and Eric Clapton, the three greatest instrumentalists of their kind together." And, and I'm just like, "Wow, you know, this is this is crazy." So. There was something about the guitar player. And then the, the Hendrix, I remember the Axis Bold is Love. I remember they used to have to put it on in order for me to take a nap because I'd like to hear the whole, welcome to Radio Station EXP, you know, that whole thing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, when I was in third grade, I did a report on Hendrix. There was uh, another neighbor in the neighborhood. The boys were a little older than I was, but we used to hang out over there. And the older brother had this room, which was like a Hendrix shrine. There were like <laughs> these life-size Jimmy posters and shit. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm pretty sure this is a god. You know what I mean? It was like, it was done in such reverential terms. And then you put the whole delusion of my mom kind of, you know, bless her heart, you know, me being, you know, the youngest kid. She was, oh, you're, you're fine. We finally got a boy after five girls. And it was like, I was a whoops, you know, and there was like five years from me and my younger sibling. It was like, you're going to do great things. And so it was like, really? You know what I mean? So it was like in this kind of delusion of grandeur that I meant to do something that's going to be unusual. Is it going to be sports? Is it, am I going to be a lawyer? Am I going to do this? It's like, oh, the guitar thing is really happening. I guess this is it. You know what I mean? So yeah. that was kind of the whole group. And, and then plus, there, there's got to be a little ADHD type of thing. I mean, that was before people got tested for it. But I clearly had <laughs> like cyper or like hyper focus type of stuff. And uh, when I got to be a teenager, you know, around 12, 13, it's like I could not concentrate on my schoolwork anymore. It's like my attention was so, but I could concentrate on the guitar. And so that's where all my, put all my eggs in that basket and uh, all my hopes of doing so. I mean, I, I, I got by uh, academically, but certainly before that there were, you know, my dad was a lawyer. There was definitely, oh, I'm going to follow in that kind of footsteps. And it became clear from like 12, 13, 14. It's like, no, 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 no. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this guitar thing and we'll see what happens. So, wow. It's amazing how common the older brother is when I'm talking to guys about, you know, either the older brother played or he just, yeah, he turned them on to Hendrix or the Beatles or something like that. And how that was just, you know, such a lightning rod for, you know, I, I had a younger sister. I didn't have an older brother, but my dad did listen to a lot of records. But, man, I can't imagine being around. My dad tells me about being in the car and hearing Purple Haze the first time. And he was just, a you know, a music fanatic, but not a musician. And he said that, you know, even for him, that was like he pulled the car over and said to his girlfriend at the time, like, what the hell is this? You know, like it was aliens. I, and he went and bought the record, and it, he feels like it changed his life. And yet he's not a musician, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, there was just yeah. some, you know, Hendrix, there was just something so paranormal about it all. I mean, even even if you get past the, you know, obviously the world is all about, you know, hyping things up and marketing and all that kind of stuff. But even after all those years, you listen to what Hendrix did and it's like, 
sorry, there was some, there's something at play there that is a little beyond the normal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know what what was all going on. Maybe it was just the acid that kind of tapped in, <laughs> tapped into some. I don't know. Uh, but back then as well, I mean, there because. It was very anti-establishment. I mean, your parents, for the, I mean, a little different for you, but and my dad, they were in the World War II generation. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, they listened to big band stuff. Maybe as they got older, they bought a Trini, Trini Lopez record. Or, right. you know, when Chuck Mangione came out, they bought a little bit of, you know, Feel So Good or something like that. But, but for the most part, it's like Hendrix and Zeppelin and Cream. That was just noise to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're like, no, 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 this guy's tapping into something, you know, the, and so there was there was an aspect of rebellion to it. Plus, you could not see it. I mean, it was like before MTV came out. Yeah, it's like it was complete mystery what was going on. And you know, there might be like a historical retrospective of rock and roll on network television where they would show like two seconds of Hendrix, and it would be like Monterey footage where he's like putting the guitar through his legs or yeah. burning it. And you're like, oh my god, this guy is. Where, where can I see more? They, they were like. They were too cool. They were cooler than athletes. They were cooler than yeah. movie stars. They were in a, in a world of their own. And, and, and that's something that I think that, um, I don't know if it was a good thing to have it in play, at least in the minds of delusional punks such as myself, but it's certainly yeah. something that people today probably can't relate to because they can go on YouTube at any time and see anybody and, you know, doing and the most intimate stuff now has all been put up online. There's really yeah. no mystery in it anymore. And that's led to other cool things. Uh, as a result of that, but uh, certainly back then there was that reverence for it and the mystery of it and the rebellion of it. It was it was yeah. all of the above. Yeah, wow, must have been awesome to kind of be seeing it unfold like that. All right, so when when do you then kind of pivot or transition into like playing with other musicians and and gigs start becoming a thing or garage bands or something like that? Uh, well, I started playing guitar so what happened was is that uh you know seventh grade uh you know you start having girlfriends let's of be course, honest yeah. and uh and i have to say i was a rather good looking young, young, <laughs> young <laughs> well, you don't have to say it and, but you just uh, did say it. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was this this new world was afoot you know like holy cow this is great you know girls and this whole thing and going to parties and whatnot and so me and some of my cronies were like let's put together a band and play at our eighth grade graduation, which we thought would be the coup de gras. You know what I mean? It would be like, this will be the coolest thing of all time. So me and about four of my buddies started taking lessons the summer of our seventh grade. And um, of the four, only me and another guy made it to the following year. And we got a drummer from another school uh, and we performed at our eighth grade graduation. And we played, I still can kind of remember the set list. I think we did like uh, Hey Joe and Purple Haze and Fire. And we did, um, at that time, that Nazareth song, Now You're Messing With a Son of a Bitch. Oh, we played yeah. that. <laughs> we did uh, Get Off of My Club by the Star. I think we did Jumpin' Jack Flash. And then Repeat, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And so we played that, and that was our first gig. And then shortly thereafter, uh, there was a buddy of mine who I was, was in eighth grade with who's whose older brother uh, was like, maybe he was a junior in high school at that time. Uh, And they hired me to be in their band. So right away I was doing gigs. And that band played, uh, it was was an interesting dynamic because he was, I don't know if you ever encountered this, but there was always this weird, sometimes you would would encounter this weird divide between 
kind of early Beatles fan. They were into the early Beatles stuff. They were like like the power pop thing, and then of course they were into the kind of the the power popish stuff at the time, which would be anything from like the Babies to uh, um, certainly Cheap Trick. Uh, the Romantics had just come out, uh, and they hated. Hendrix, they thought all that stuff was just chromatic. They just, there was this huge divide. And I remember my guitar teacher at the time, I got another guitar teacher who showed me the Hendrix stuff and Cream. And, and this other guy who I was in a band with would talk trash about this stuff. So they had like this, this letter war going back. You don't know what you're talking about. But, 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 you know, and they would go back and I'm like, what is this? It's all, it's all good. I like it all. You know what I mean? So I ended up in this band playing um, this music that wasn't necessarily oh in the cars we did a bunch of the cars the cars had just come out and i really dug especially that first cars record i loved it so uh that was my first band i started playing out with quite a bit and we did for a couple years but i always had my own bands as well which were more kind of blues rock oriented Mm. um and then i started playing in jazz band in, in high school and started doing that and would play in little offshoot groups of that and then there were wedding bands that i would play in uh throughout high school that was basically my my power trio high school band would front or would be fronted by this guy who could play accordion and guitar. And so he would do all the waltzes and tangos and all that kind of stuff because very German community around here. And so we would do sure. all that stuff and then he would grab his acoustic guitar and then we would do, you know, Chuck Berry tunes and Stones and Beatles stuff and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I gig pretty much after like after that first gig in eighth grade, I, I gig pretty steadily after that. All throughout uh, high school. Just, all throughout high school absolutely yeah so how i mean how great is that feeling the first like you know paid gig the real paid gig you know where you get 20 bucks shoved in your pocket or 75 dollars or whatever oh it was fantastic uh and plus i you know plus i'm hanging out with older older kids who are cooler and of course there was always beer around you know what i mean it was yeah it was like, you know, one minute you're in eighth grade, you're you're six months away from playing Hot Wheels, and next thing you know, you're in a rock band with a bunch of older pirates. It was great. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah, and you're still living at home, so were you saving the money, or were you spending it like water? Uh, you know, I saved it a bit, um, but mostly spent it. I mean, there yeah. was a... Uh, I did save money my, my junior year of high school. Um, it was kind of weird because I, I went to this all-boys Catholic school from what, uh, freshman and sophomore year, kind of this hoity-toity thing that, you know, um, my dad had gone to the high school, my brother had gone to the high school, and, and uh, it's a legacy, as I said, man. I was not, <laughs> yeah, and I was not exactly academically motivated at this point in time, so I was screwing up at, at this high school, and so I ended up, and I did not get along with the band director, who, uh, if he uttered the things that he uttered back then, he would have been fired, like, immediately. But he would say all of this, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he was one of these just total anti-rock and roll guys, you know. And what, what was so funny back then is that rock and roll, someone who was more of kind of a jazz purist of, of sort would be anything from, like, anything from Devo to Yes. It's all rock and roll. I hate it all. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so I did not get, and he just kind of, you know, blackballed me and from being in, in the jazz band, even though I was in the jazz band and it was kind of horrid. And then I go to this public school to get out of their junior and senior year. And this guy treated me like a king from the get go. So I heard how I played and would have songs that would feature me. And he's like, well, if you like this, you should check this out. So anyway, he sent, ended up uh, giving me a scholarship to the, go to this uh, jazz camp uh, junior year in high school, summer of my junior year. 
And um, I went up there and I, I met the, the, the guitar instructor up there. It was super cool. I mean, he rec- I was playing a tally at the time, and he recognized I had this blues thing going and a little bit of this chicken-picking thing and a little bit of jazz. You know, I, I like listened to the early George Benson stuff and a little bit of Charlie Christian, so I had a, a few of those things down. And he's like, man, you should really check out these guys. So then he played me for the first time, Larry Carlton and Robin Ford. So then there was another guy at the camp who had a 335. He always wanted to play a telly, and now I wanted to check out a 335. So we kind of swapped guitars for the, the week of the summer camp. So then I got back home, and my, one, another one of my dad's clients was a, uh, owned a plastics company. So I got a job in this plastics factory, which might explain a few things, me being <laughs> exposed to these <laughs> toxic vapors. Anyway, so I saved up money all summer long, and I bought a, uh, a 335, a blonde uh, 335 dot neck. That was a reissue. But those 80s, early 80s reissues were really cool. They yeah. had those Tim Shaw pickups. Yeah, and Tim Shaw. I talk yeah. to Guy King about this all the time because that's what he, he uses. And yeah. I love that guitar. It ended up getting stolen, but uh, I love that oh. guitar. It was my main guitar for years. Well, you said you were already playing a telly then. Uh, was there a reason for the telly, or did you just luck upon it? Well, mostly lucked upon it. So, you know, I um, I wanted a Strat because Hendrix played a Strat. And and I just loved the sound. I, I, especially at that time, I loved the sound of a neck pickup on a Fender guitar. Mm-hmm. And I remember I'd go over to a buddy of mine's house, and his dad had like a one pickup. I think it was maybe a Music Master or something like that from the 60s. It had the big headstock and just the one neck pickup. Uh, it looked like kind of a Mustang body. I can't remember what it was. But they had a little Fender amp, and I would just sit there for hours just playing on that neck pickup going, man, I want a, I want a Fender neck pickup. Because at the time, I had a, a Fender Lead 1. Remember those? They just had the bridge pickup in back. Yeah, It was yeah. a humbucker that you could kind of coil tap. Um, so I went into my guitar lesson one day, and my guitar teacher, uh, my second guitar teacher was more of a, uh, of a rock and roll dude. He had the 68 telly he was selling. And uh, I was like, man. And then I played it, and I played that neck pickup, and man, it sounded good. And I remember just saying to my dad, it's like, look, I, I've got like, you know, 200 and some odd bucks. Can you please just front me the money for this guitar? And so my, and usually that was a no-go proposition with my dad. But for whatever reason, I, I talked him into it. So I ended up playing the telly, and it just turned out to be ergonomically the guitar that I always went you know, really felt home at from there on in. As a matter of fact, when I actually got my hands on a Strat, I didn't like it as much because I preferred the neck pickup on a telly and the bridge pickup on a telly versus the on a Strat. Right. I always kind of craved, you know, the middle pickup on the Strat in the in the two and four positions, but I could never get past the fact that a Tele neck and bridge pickup was like it, onboard channel switching. It just sounded great. You could get all these warm, yeah. glorious tones, especially that Tele. The neck pickup sounded so good, and when you back to that bridge pickup, it was like the perfect just kind of kick above that was just right. And uh, so it was more of it wasn't wasn't so much that all my guitar players that I emulated were tele guys that really I mean some were at that point but it was the Fender guitar that was offered to me and that's why that I ended up playing it. Okay, because yeah, for me, same. I wanted a Strat more than anything. Strat was my first serious guitar. I was a Strat guy my whole life, and I owned tellies. They came and went. And they were always like, yeah, I'm a Strat guy, you know, until some reason I got the right one, you know, and then it changed everything. But, yeah, it's weird how, you know, uh, obviously it's influenced by what we grow up on, but mostly what just gets how you get luck out and what what ends up in your hands, you know. Exactly. And I guess I I was lucky at that time, too, that 
I don't think there was as much of a culture of always needing another guitar, another pedal, another, you know what I mean? That seems to be such a part of the guitar culture now, which is great because that's what helps a lot of us keep in tall cotton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but back then it was like, you know, once you had a guitar that worked, you were good. You know, it was just like, now let's just get to playing and, you know, yeah. just obsessing with playing and listening to stuff and then just kind of going, well, this guitar is my voice. That's all I need. I mean, changing strings. I mean, I only changed them when I broke them. <laughs> right. Yeah. What do you need Until to change them for? They so still work. Crud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I would always remember being just, just, just gobsmacked. But when I changed strings, like, man, it sounds so bright. Ah, oh, what does that sound? <laughs> oh man all right so you're you're gigging all the time you finish high school what's the next decision is it is it you know uh get a real job or go to college or are you all in already at that point well i i knew i wanted to be a musician more than anything else I, there was nothing that even kind of crossed my mind and um and plus, I just had this overriding delusion that I had a special thing and that it was all going to be all right, you know? Right. And um, uh, which I think, you know, unfortunately, y you got to kind of have. I mean, I've told my my kids that that are, you know, you know, when they get involved in theater and other things, I was like, look, there almost has to be this delusion of I'm going to do this no matter what. And whatever bullshit comes my way as a result of my decision, my love and my vision of what I'm going to do is going to usurp that to the point where it's it's not going to matter. I'm just going to keep on going. And unless you have that, you know, you're kind of vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> you're vulnerable anyway, but at least you have the uh, the enthusiasm to keep on going. So. Um, I remember when I was a, a senior, it was it was kind of a drag. I mean, everyone's making their plans to go to college. Oh, I'm going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And oh, I'm going to Minnesota. And I'm going here. And all these people are making their plans. So I started doing some homework. And at that time, you know, I, I, I wanted to go to GIT per se, but that was just too daunting. You know what I mean? I, I, the idea of going to LA all by myself, first of all, I knew my parents would never go for it. And, and plus it, it was very intimidating for me as well. And so I heard that uh, I was obsessed with Texas because, you know, Stevie Ray had come out at that point. When the first time I heard Stevie Ray Vaughan, I mean, I was into, because I was playing that neck pickup on that telly and so on and so forth, I was into clean Fender tones, maybe just a little overdrive, and I was really into Albert King and Hendrix mm -hmm. and like T-Bone Walker and B.B. King. And then I loved Billy Gibbons as well. I mean, I loved the way Billy's approach was, and I, especially the DeGuelo record, I was obsessed with it. You know, the oh, Strat yeah. tones of that record are just ridiculous. And, and so, and at the time, everyone that was around me were metal guys, you know what I mean? Everyone my age was obsessed with Van Halen and, and hair metal, or else they were punk rockers that were into, you know, anything from The Clash to Depeche Mode or whatever the mm -hmm. case may be. It's like, I was like, I thought I had the inside track on the style that no one, everyone was ignoring and that maybe this was, I was just going to walk on in and say, hey, check this stuff out again. It's cool. And all of a sudden, this, I hear this David Bowie record and I'm like, who's this motherfucker doing these Albert King licks that wait a minute. You know what I mean? Who's you mean? Somebody else has been listening to this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I remember reading this, of course, you know, you're delusional. I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm in, you know, like myopia. I'm thinking there's got no one else. No one else is listening to this. Right. So, uh, I, I open up this magazine and it's, uh, it's about the less dance record. And, and I see this picture of Nile Rogers and he's this guy with a strat. I go, that's gotta be him. So I start reading into it a little bit more, and they're like, no, 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 no. There's this other guy who played on the record, the Stevie Ray Vaughan. I didn't know anybody named Vaughn, so I thought it was Vaughan. 
<laughs> so then I heard that this guy had a record out. I'm like, I got to get this record. And then like, uh, I remember specifically riding shotgun and my buddy Bill Young's Bobcat, which was like a Pinto takeoff. But it was like the Dodge version of the Bobcat riding along. And they're like, if you like the guy that played on the David Bowie record, here's his new solo thing. And they played Pride and Joy. I'm like, wait a minute. So we went right to the uh, 1812 Overture, which was the um, uh, which was the big record store around here. And I went in, I go up to the counter, and I go, "Have you heard of this guy, Steve Ray Vaughan?" <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's back there, and they had two copies of Texas Flood. And I remember I got the copy, and we went over to my buddy Bill Young's house, and his parents weren't home, and so we were having some beers, listening to this thing, and my brain is blown because all my favorite Hendrixisms that I yeah. thought were like the stuff that everyone was just kind of glossing over. And then like, you know, he'd do that, you know, uh, uh, BBC version of like driving South and all that yeah. kind of clean Hendrix stuff that you would hear him do like on the live versions of red house and just, you know, and then of course his versions of little wing where he'd play and all of a sudden listen to this rock. It's like this guy has cherry picked all the best shit and that tone is ridiculous and he sings great. I hate him, but I love him. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I remember I went home and even I'm buzzed on a Saturday afternoon and I forced my parents to listen to the record. I go, this is what I want to do. And they're like, great. You're, by the way, you're buzzed and you're in high school. You know what I mean? It was not. Oh my God. <laughs> Dude, but how great! I mean, you'll you'll never forget the you, the way you told the story, sitting shotgun. You, you can't ever forget that moment. And it's like people now don't have that moment. You know, it's like oh, I just look at Spotify on my phone. You know, my son will never own a record in his entire life. And it's like I can remember going to buy. I remember someone giving me. I had heard Stevie on the radio, but I was ten when he passed away, so I I never right. saw him. There was no YouTube, and someone gave me a VHS bootleg of Live at the Elma Combo before it was a real release. I had that before any record. So then I went to the right. store, and the only one they had in stock was Couldn't Stand the Weather. So I thought that was his first album. So that's what I bought, you know? But it's like I'll never forget either of those moments, you know, getting that VHS and seeing what he really looked like when he played for the first time and then buying that record, you know, and hearing Scuttlebutton come on. Like, what the fuck? Oh, my you know? God. Yeah, and I'll, I can't, you know, I, I, I feel like guys are missing out on that experience. Like, dude, when someone first told me about Danny Gatton, it was the same. I got a cassette tape with Danny Gatton randoms same here. all over a cassette. So the first thing I did was go down to Specs Music and flip through the catalog and make them order me whatever they could find of Danny Gatton. And it took weeks and weeks for these, these tapes to come in, you know? Yeah. Oh, I remember I, I had the same experience with Danny. I got a tape and... Well, there was in, I think it was about junior year in high school. So for me, that would have been 1983. And, and Rockabilly was really big. And that was fun because the Stray Cats were a bona fide huge band. And Brian Setzer played cool shit. And, yeah. you know, and the Thunderbirds were kind of, you know, coming on. And, of course, Stevie Ray was out. And and there was a um, an article in Guitar Player Magazine. And Brian Setzer was on the front. And... Um, and it was kind of like the the heroes, heroes of rockabilly nowadays that maybe not everybody heard of. And there was, you know, Sleepy LaBeef was in there. And I can't remember everybody, but I know Danny Gatton was in there. And it was that picture of him with his telly with the beer bottle like this with his hair kind of greased back like a greaser, yeah. you know, and he's like this. And I remember reading that article. I'm like, man, I bet I'd really dig this guy. 
but that was as far as it went. And then like a year later, I was playing in a band uh, with this guy. I think it was a year after, it might have been a year after high school. Um, I got hooked up with this guy who was in a, a local band called the Booze Brothers, which was this massive band that was a, a Blues Brothers tribute band, but they had their own thing and they would just pack every festival around here. And the guy's name was Tommy Milkowski, but he went by Tommy Milwaukee. And nice. we planned his band. It was all, we did like all rockabilly stuff and, and uh, you know, Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe stuff and, and like old uh, uh, rockabilly stuff as well. And one day we were rehearsing in his basement and his brother Bill Milkowski was in town. And Bill Milkowski is the guy that, you know, wrote the Jaco Pistorius book and wrote mm-hmm. writes for Downbeat and all this kind of stuff. Wrote for Guitar World, I guess, for a while. And um, he was upstairs, and he was listening to us play downstairs. And he comes downstairs, and he looks at me, he goes, he goes, man, do you, he goes, the way you play, do you, do you listen to Danny Gatton at all? And I go, well, no, I've heard of him, but I've never heard him. And he's like, oh, he goes, you know, the way you're playing, you, you dig him. And I'm like, okay, cool. So he sent me a cassette tape. With, on one side, it was Redneck Jazz, and the other side, it was Unfinished Business. Oh. And, and that was my entree, and I was like, and I wore that shit out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And it was just, it was bizarre to me because um, I was really into Albert Lee. And, and mm-hmm. around that time, Albert Lee had put out <clears throat> two really cool instrumental records, A Gag But Not Bound and Speechless. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and I really loved those records. And then I had a, uh, because uh, I found out about Albert Lee through, through Clapton. He was on that Clapton yeah, right, record. Yeah. And that's how I heard about it. And that's kind of what led me down that lane of playing. And when I first heard Danny, it was it was like there was a lot of reverb going on. It was like the guitar sound was a little bit more gnarly, so it wasn't as like it was different from Albert. It was more like over the top, and 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 I dug it. But I, it wasn't like I sat down and thought I got to learn everything. It was like over time with Danny, it was just like I hear like, like I think I think I want to try to figure that little thing out right there. <laughs> and then it was just kind of one of those things where it. It, it I I dug it more with time and uh, but it definitely knocked. My, I remember hearing that tape for the first time and just going, I don't even know what a lot of this shit is. I just my brain hurts. You know what well, I mean? Well, yeah, that was I didn't I I couldn't understand a lot of what was going on, but I remember what registered in the same way that seeing Stevie, actually seeing him for the first time, hit me mostly in the the oh my god, look at the amount of effort. Like he loves this more than anything in the world. Like look how how much yeah. he loves this. Danny, I remember taking away from listening to that tape. This dude will play anything, anywhere. He don't give a fuck. Like he, he right. just he, he hears it, he plays it. Like he's an open, like wow. He has no fear, and he has a sense of humor. And it's like, wow, right. maybe it's okay to play all this random crap that I'm hearing all the time and just let it out, you know. And I, I remember clearly taking that away from listening to him for the first time. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is when I finally saw Danny. Uh, oh, you we saw him? I'm so, I'm so jealous. Oh. Well, we did, we did this. This is probably... I'm trying to think of what year-ish. 93, maybe? 92? I don't know. Somewhere in there. 92, 93. Because um, he died in 96, I think, right? Something like that? No, I think... I think or was it Matt, yeah, 95, 95, 96. You're 95. right. Some, okay, it was so right before I graduated high school, so it was somewhere... Or in there, yeah. Okay, so we uh, there's a showcase club in town. It's still there, Shank Hall, and yeah. uh, named after the fictitious venue in Spinal Tap with that where they were playing when they were. David, smell the glove is here. It was that was yeah. at this. They were supposedly at a 
a place called Shank Hall. So this guy <laughs> named the club after it. There was a giant, you know, Stonehenge above the stage. Um, <laughs> and so we, we did a triple bill. It was uh, our band, which at that time was my band, was Greg Cock and the Tone Controls. Right. And then uh, Danny Gatton and Mick Taylor. Whew. And, um, and so we played our set. And I remember Danny doing the sound check early on. I remember just being in there and just going, this is unbelievable. And I remember it was, it was really loud because he was playing that, that Tweed Twin. Mm -hmm. uh, but we played our set and uh, we, we had to share our dressing room with Danny's band. And we didn't get to talk to him before the show or anything. But after we got done with our set and we're going in the dressing room, they're all in there hanging out. And Danny's sitting there against the wall playing his guitar. And he looks up. He goes, you the guitar player? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, that was great. And he comes over and, and it's like he was one of those guys that made you feel like you were like best friends the moment you met him. And we just started shooting the shit, talking about guitars, talking about this, that, the next thing. I still have, I had my legal pad where I had my set list written down. And he's like, hey, man. He took a marker and he wrote down, it was Danny Gatton, his address and his phone number. He goes, call me anytime. You know, he was just like the coolest guy ever. And then I watched the show. And what what got me more than because at that time we had we had done shows with a lot of different, uh, and you know, Steve Morris band to David Lindley to... Uh, uh, I can't even remember all the people, but like any guitar-oriented show that would come through town yeah. at that point in time, we'd end up opening up for him. And I remember seeing Danny and thinking, not only is this arguably, you know, the, the, the toppest tier of musicality in terms of guitar playing that I've seen, but it was entertaining as fuck. It was great. I mean, he, he understood how to entertain a crowd with instrumental music. There was humor, as you mentioned, but he, he just understood. There were great grooves. The arrangements were cool. It was exciting. It was just, he got it. There was just no question about it. It was definitely not one of those things where it was just kind of like, uh, you know, a sausage fest where <laughs> people are kind of sitting around like this. It was like, man, this is fun as shit. And the guy's blowing my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. I, I wanted so badly to see him play. And he never came down to Florida between the time that I got turned on and before he passed away. Like, he never came down to where I lived. So, I, yeah, I always just wished I had that chance. <laughs> well, what, what was interesting is, is that, you know, we kept in touch on the phone. And then uh, we, we were actually going to do a tour with him. He was going to do a, a Midwestern tour. And I talked to him on the phone. And I was like, is it okay if we open up for you? you know, which, of course, now at my age, I know what that call is like to receive. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, but he was really cool. He's like, hey, I think that'd be a really good idea. He goes, call my agent. Their name is so-and-so. Here's the phone number. I told him you were going to call. Call them up and they'll they'll set up the whole thing. Wow. And um, like, really? So I called up this, and oh yeah, Danny told us all about you. Here are the dates. This is what we're planning on doing. And you know, we're, everything's yet to be solidified. It's all kind of up in the air, but you're definitely dialed in. And then shortly thereafter, he canceled the tour. And then not shortly thereafter, not too much after that, he ended up committing suicide. So it was yeah. it was horrific. But I always remember that as being, you know, he didn't need to say that. He didn't need to do it. And he did it. And, and yeah. you know, it could have easily just been no. Uh, or, yeah, call them. And they would have said, no, sorry. And they would have blown me up. But, he, you know, he was a really good dude. And uh, it's a doggone shame. But he was just, uh, you know, yeah. wow. uh just a fantastic musician, obviously. My, oh. You know, I think still, I, I like all the records, the Redneck Jazz stuff with Buddy Emmons, all that stuff is killer. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the record he did with uh, Joey DeFrancesco. There's great tunes yeah. on there. Relentless, yeah. And uh, I love yeah, it all, a, man. 
And so, honestly, Cruise Induces, I still put on all the time. It's probably my, like, favorite. Just, like, if I had to turn somebody on to Danny Gatton, I would play him Cruise Induces normally. Yeah, and that's I a just, great I record. No doubt about it. Yeah. Oh. No doubt. Dude, all right. So, before we get into the 10 questions, I just got to ask, like, okay, so you, you're gigging. You're, you know, you're, you've done this whole trip of, you know, becoming a, a working musician. Um now that you've arrived at like this new, you know, path that you're on, maven of social media, darling of the gear world, you know, basically guitar superstar, um, did you ever think this was how it's going to go? You probably, you know, I'm sure you just thought you were going to play gigs for the rest of your life and, you know, be a working musician. Well, you know, it's interesting because, sorry, I got sidetracked before that, but I did, I did end up going to college for, for music. Oh, right, I right, was going right. to go down to Texas to this, uh, uh, Herb Ellis had a school down in Texas and I really wanted to go down there, but my parents poo-pooed that because it wasn't a, a college accredited thing. So, uh, the guitar teacher that turned me on to, uh, Robin Ford and, and Larry Carlton ended up being the head of a jazz department at this university of Wisconsin, Stevens point. So I ended up going there, but oh. so I went to school there and I just wanted to learn how to play over changes and be literate in music. I wanted to know how to write music, uh, you know, be able to write it down, be able to read it at a professional level and know how to play over chord changes. I really didn't have any desire to, to like learn all the standards and all the keys. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, I was so uh, turned off by some of the jazz purists that I'd encountered that, you know, I was adverse to major seventh chords for decades. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so years went on and I had my own band. Um, and you know, we were making waves in, in town and we were, you know, we opened up for these people. Oh, we're going to, we're going to try to get you, you know, we, there was enough buzz going on that I thought, well, we're going to, we're going to make it. I don't know what I thought made it meant, but I, I thought it meant we're going to be able to make records, making our music and tour around and gradually build this thing to the point where, um, you know, people know about us all over the place and it's going to be great and so on and so forth. Cause the band was solid. I mean, the, you know, yeah. the drummer had a really excellent voice and uh you know i sang and was passable and and we had a um a bass player had a great harmony voice and we wrote this music that was kind of an you know an infusion of all the stuff that we we talked about that we love but there was this vocal element there were hooks you know it was definitely accessible music uh but because it wasn't really categorically uh feasible it wasn't blues it wasn't rock it was all these things and plus we weren't exactly as evidenced by some of the pictures I've been posting on social media, it's not like we were a no-brainer visual. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I mean, we. I mean, I looked at. I mean, at the time, I mean, I loved the Allman Brothers, and to them, they to me, they were just cool as shit. And they went on stage with a T-shirt and long hair and a ponytail. Yeah. And that's all you needed because they were so badass. It didn't matter. That was our mentality. It was like we had long hair because we could because we didn't have to work a straight job. And, uh, but we didn't care if we wore t-shirts and, and dad jeans. I mean, that was like, fuck, who gives a shit, you know? Right. Uh, but then it got to the point where I was like, man, I, you know, gigging all the time, that's not that much dough. I mean, you know, at one point when you're working at a, the hotshot guitar store during the day and gigging out six nights a week, it's pretty doggone cool when you're 25 years old. But uh -huh. all of a sudden you start knocking on the door at 30 and you're married and you got a kid. And another one on the way, it's like, this ain't so cool anymore. So, and then when I stopped drinking, that was another huge thing because <clears throat> a lot of complacency when you're able to just party on the gig. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, after I stopped drinking, I'd go into a place and I'm like, 
what the fuck am I doing in this place? <laughs> and realizing the only way that the only reason why you were playing these same old places over and over again is because they'd pay you a stipend and then you could party at all the places I played at. There was people I'd like to party with and certain things we'd party with, you know, substances yeah. and beverages and so on and so forth. Um, so then it got to the point where I was like, um, whatever I thought was going to happen in terms of making it, I was like, man, it couldn't, it could never happen. I better be just lucky to get what I could get. So I started doing some session stuff and I got hooked up with Fender at that point in time. And, um, and they saw me playing a club, you know, they, they, I was playing, I, I was working at this music store during the day, a couple of the local rep came in with one of the higher ups who'd been with Fender since the sixties. And he heard me playing. He's like, are you in a band? I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I play in this band. I, my real band's playing this weekend, but I got this offshoot band that I play with t uh, tonight. was the drummer from the Dave Mason band and the mu former musical director of the Everly Brothers. These two older dudes and then the two younger guys, the bass player and myself. And so he came down to that show and he stayed all night and he said, hey, we should really do something with you. Would you, would you be into doing clinics? Would you, you know, we should get you written up in Fender Frontline Magazine. I'm like, fuck, that'd be awesome. Let's do it. So then the very next night we were playing at that same club now with my band that did mostly original tunes or original interpretations of the shit I was into. And um, and this guy Jack Schwartz came out again with the local rep and he saw the band. He bought we had like ten tapes. We used to we had these double tape decks and we had a dat player. So every weekend when we were gonna do gigs, we would, you know, we'd go to Kinko's and we'd print out the the cassette, you know, artwork and we'd cut them out with right. an exacto knife. And then we would, you know, dub these tapes and then we would handwrite with like a funky pen, you know, Greg Hawk and the tone controls, you know, and put it in these things. And so we'd have like 10 or a dozen of these tapes at gigs. And he's like, I'll buy them all. So then he bought all these tapes, Jack Schwartz, and he started passing them around to all these people at Fender. So then I thought, well, maybe this could be my thing. I mean, I knew that Fender had done a lot for Danny Gatton, not that I was comparing myself to Danny Gatton, but I thought, well, as far as like promoting a guitar guy, this could be a a pretty awesome um, uh, vehicle. And uh, so, but where, where it ended up not being the greatest uh, foisting of my artistry to the mainstream, I, I found that I was, I had this ability to do the clinics uh, in a way that was entertaining. I showed some techniques. I had fun doing it and they sold shit. So yeah. that was kind of my foray into, okay, now I got to be a, a grown up and, you know, be a, a contributor to the family in a way that's significant, more than significant of playing in clubs and, you know, the random session here and there. And plus I didn't, you know, I, like auditioning for a band and being gone for six months at a time wasn't quite in the cards either. Mm -hmm. So it turned out that this other way of making a living started to happen and it was like Fender first and then it was the Hal Leonard thing where they appro approached me and was like how would you like to rewrite the Hal Leonard guitar method with our you know the original author and kind of update it and we'd be into doing whatever else you're into <clears throat> as far as techniques and other books and you know we'll kind of make you our guy and you'll go out and clinic it so that all ended up started happening um, and so it became a way and then you know I got the deal with 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 Steve Vai and that was more of my instrumental right. stuff mm -hmm. that Know, and that was what it was, but I just kind of went with the stuff that that kind of um, uh, was available to me. You know what I mean? And that's and as this internet stuff kind of came to the fore, the Wildwood thing was really the thing that kind of um, made all of this social media stuff for me, um, a, a, you know, a, a very 
viable way to <clears throat> get my music out there and, of course, get paid. Yeah, and uh, and that was total by accident. I, I had done a clinic with uh, actually with Tom Breckline and with uh, Roscoe Beck. We were doing these trio Fender gigs, and we did one for Wildwood out in Colorado. And, and Steve, the owner, and his wife had us over to their house, and we had a nice dinner and whatnotery. And um, and about a year and a half later, I get a call from the Fender rep, Jeff Bowen, out in that area, and he's like, "Hey, remember Wildwood? Remember Steve?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He's like, he's got this idea for doing this thing for the, their website. You know, they do, they were the first ones to kind of take really high quality pictures and put the minutia of all the different things of guitars on their website. Right. And their next thing is they want to have videos. So they buy all these different guitars. And they want someone to play them and have people hear them and see them. And at that time, Steve wanted, <clears throat> was going to have people from all these different manufacturers provide someone like me. So I would do Fender stuff and whoever would do Gibson or whoever would do right. Howard Smith and so on. Um, so I said, I'd do it. So I went out there and I did one video. It was a Telecaster and they basically on the screen, they said, you know, what the guitar was, the serial number and the weight. And he said, look, you know, just play the guitar, kind of go through all the pickup selections, maybe clean, dirty, maybe some different styles and maybe just a, a quick impression of what you think of the guitar. So I did one video and uh, we got done and Steve stood up from across the room and he walked over and he goes, can I hire you to do this? I go, what do you mean? And he goes, I'll fly you out here every month and and do these videos. I go, you mean kind of like a job? Because <laughs> at that point in time, I had been doing stuff for Fender for a long time, but they had never, I was never on retainer. And, sure. and the amount of stress I had to, to, I had all these contacts with Fender all over the globe and putting my, together my calendar for the year in between like band tours and Hal Leonard stuff. I mean, it was like, it was always kind of this real stress-filled thing of we're gonna we're gonna do three weeks in July and then in the middle of May. Well, it's mostly like a it's gonna be like a weekend and you'd be like, ah. yeah. you know. So there was I just found it odd that there was this store independent dealer in Colorado that was going to make me more of a commitment than the biggest guitar manufacturer on earth. And then once I started doing clinics or you know, videos for them every month doing Fender guitars, in a couple of days I'm in the store and I'm playing, you know, I'm playing a Les Paul or playing whatever, and they hear me playing them. I'm like, well, you have a whole different thing you do on those different guitars. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I played Gibsons for forever. I'm like, well, we could use you a lot more if you played those guitars. So then next thing you know, I'm playing all of these other different instruments. Um, and the videos just, I mean, th there's literally thousands of those videos. And so yep. they're going online and, 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 and all these different people have seen, I mean, it's amazing to me, the people that have seen these damn videos. And so I, I say that from the Fender thing to the Helen, all that stuff was great. You know, Steve Vyra, whatever, all the different things from the different guitar magazines were all cool. And I'm grateful they all happened, but they all pale in comparison to having done those Wildwood videos. Cause wow. I'm mostly playing my own tunes. You know, and I, I'm mostly, you know, and I, I could be myself and just they let the humor thing. I could say whatever. I could say and play whatever I want within reason. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and that's what, what really kind of uh, made everything kind of happen for me. So it's, uh, and again, I never would have seen that coming. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, how could you have? Seen that in a yeah, there's I mean, no way like you we could We were have talking seen about that. the other day. It's like, you know, you, you do all this stuff with your own music and you're trying to do this, that, and the next thing, but you realize that there are certain aspects of what you do that just resonate with people that you never really thought of. And then you just got to go, okay, that's cool too. <laughs> yeah. It, it's very interesting. Very interesting. You know, gauging what the audience, what you perceive as the best thing you can give to the audience, which would be your music, of course, and what the thing the right. audience actually wants from you the most, they don't always line up. <laughs> exactly. Or what, another thing I've noticed, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but you know, you put together an original piece of music and you've, 
and you've orchestrated it, you've worked on the structure of the song, you're getting the performance just right, and you record it, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's great. And then you record some one-off thing where it's like a, an afterthought in the studio. Hey, this guy, let's just do a shuffle. You know what I mean? You do that, yeah. and that's the thing. You know what I mean? Yep. yep. It's yep. crazy. But as I said, you know, whatever works. <laughs> what? Yeah, whatever Whatever keeps me playing guitar every day and not doing anything else is, is kind of okay with me. Exactly. I'm with you 150%. Also, I didn't realize it was Jack Schwartz that kind of got the ball rolling for you. He's just the nicest dude. He was so kind oh, to me great. as a kid. He was directly responsible for me being in Fender Frontline the first time I was ever in there. And he he came to see me play when I would come to Arizona. He'd bring his son to the show. He was just such a yeah a, a wonderful dude. Yeah, he's a he's a champion. He's a really good dude. Yeah. All right, let's let's get into our ten questions. All right, sounds good. All right. Number one, when you started learning, playing, you kind of answered this already with cocaine, but the song, uh, what was the first thing that you learned that when you figured it out, it was like, oh my God, I'll never go back. This is, this is the greatest thing of all time. It seems like that was it. <laughs> well, that was one of them. Um, you know, I guess when I, when I started playing a little bit more, uh, I remember when I learned uh, kind of this little like, when I learned that lick, oh yeah, I, the gates just opened up because I, I was like, that's the lick that Jimmy Page does uh, on uh, on like um, well all the time, and then uh, you know especially because I listened to a lot of Led Zeppelin one, and he did that on Days of Confused, and Hendrix did that, you know, you know all that kind of stuff with the wah wah and so on and so forth. It's like. I, as soon as I, I remember calling my friends up on the phone, going, check it out. <laughs> and, and then when I would do solos at the time, it, it would always end up there. You know what I mean? That was the money shot. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're squirreling around. Then it's, at, at some point, it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, always, always. I, I remember learning that lick vividly from Jimmy Page. And I know that for me, the, the first time I actually, like, nailed the B.B. King slow blues intro, I was like, all right, I'll oh, never yeah. do anything else for the rest of my life. I'm good now. That's it. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Number two, what was the first solo you ever learned note for note? I think it was uh, Hey Joe. Oh, good one. I think that was the, the first one. Uh, and it wasn't, and it wasn't exact by any stretch. But I remember playing it along with the record, you know. And, uh... yeah. back in the day but i remember learning that back in the day um because I, after I, I got done with my first um my first guitar teacher was mostly just teaching me out of the mel bay book mm -hmm. uh when i got to the second guy he knew all the hendrix and the cream stuff and i remember sometimes just before the lesson you know we were waiting or whatever the case may be i'd go hey do you know this one hendrix song and i would just ask him to play it you know just so i could see it you know like the, it could be done there was a lot in my mind back then where i was like the Hendrix stuff is impossible. You, you know what I mean? It's just not, <laughs> no, mortals can't do it. And so just to have someone play it in front of you. But I remember we, you know, when the... Remember learning yeah. that, I'd be like, oh! And then they'd be like... 
You know that that whole thing. Yeah. The, hey Joe, oh, I dude, think was the one where I remember. I remember. Uh, what was the live version where he just starts it by himself? And then he goes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was. I remember learning that and thinking, I know the live version of Hey Joe. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah fuck the record version. You know. It was like. And then when we'd always do the thing where you go. Oh, always the Beatles. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah. It was always. Yep. Yep. Always. We'd always do it right there. Dude. And and what's funny is. You so this stuff is so ingrained. You it could be twenty years from now. You'll never. There's no chance you could forget that solo or any of these solos by heart. You could sing them for the rest of your life and probably pick them up and within thirty seconds brush off the dust and and have it there. Right. You know what I mean? It's impossible exactly. to forget. Yeah, it's un, unbelievable. And it, I, our brains are amazing like that. I can recall like what Stevie played on the version of Texas Flood from. Italy bootleg in 1984. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, all right. What What's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar? Do you have like a little place where your hands go? Or maybe like when you're trying out a guitar, do you have a thing that you do that lets you know, you know, that this guitar works or you like it? What, what, what kind of, where's your go-to? You know, what's funny is I always have a tendency to just do a blues and G and it usually starts with like... kind of go from there i just i just kind of do a blues and g it just seems to be yeah. where i always start off every morning i sit down and just but and it's always with that something like some yeah, kind of little always, some little pickup yeah yeah <laughs> it's crazy you know i i had one it was always an e for me and it got to be so cliche that i'd be on the road as a sideman and the other musicians, before I could hit standby on my amp, they'd be playing my little first lick that I play every time I hit standby back to me before I could get it out. You know what I mean? So I had to change. You know, so now mine is in G2 every time I pick up a guitar. I play just like some random... Something, it's yeah. always some version of that, you know? You know some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... That leads us to our next question, and it might answer it, but I know for me, okay, do you have like a key, a style, a groove, uh, something, a song that kind of just lives in your head on repeat? Because for me, it's kind of like what you just said, but I hear it 24 hours a day. I hear this a shuffle, and I hear B flat. I hear just an improv that never ends. I'm always hearing, and I have to like sometimes when I'm going to bed, I have to like finish the solo before I can shut off. It's like it never ends. And I'm wondering if you have any narration like that. Uh, not per se. I do have a, it, there's like a, a shuffle kind of gospel-y thing that I do in E that seems to always be lurking. And it's kind <laughs> of, um, you know, I've got a few different tunes that have it. The...
all of his tendency to that. All right. And then, of course, I always end up on the Care Bear chord. Yeah. So I always like to do some variation of that thing, and it's kind of based on a little shovel. kind of do that shuffle it's got a little you know you know what i mean all that kind of shit yeah, so yeah. it's kind of it's kind of like gospel shuffle in in e of some sort is what yeah. it's always on repeat there's there's on. worse things that you shuffles. oh dude it's because they're the great i mean how can you it just something feel so special about that i could sit here and literally just do this and it's like it, there's nothing like that feel you know it's, yeah i hear it 24 hours a day well what's funny for me is that when i was in you know in high school there was no one that i hung out with that was into blues stuff i mean uh -huh. i could get buddies of mine that maybe were into zeppelin and hendrix and you know, a guitar player across the street, buddy of mine, was into some of the blue stuff I was into. But there was, there was no one that, there was no older figure like uh, other siblings that were like the blues guys that knew about stuff. So I didn't know that the shuffle, what happened on the drums, right? So I knew that wherever the guys that I was playing with were doing was not right. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> they'd always be like, boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba And I remember the first time I saw someone do a shuffle was just four on the floor and I just I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And once I got someone to do that and play in my band, it's like I could have played shuffles for the rest of my days. Because I would, I remember I would hear it on records from anything from, like even the part of the uh, Allman Brothers and that song, uh, uh, You Don't Love Me in the middle where they go. Even that, even yeah. that kind of, the Charleston shuffle, they like to call it. Yeah. Uh, there was something going on with the snare drum. There, you know, all that, all that real, you know, pockety, uh, root stuff on drums was something, but I remember when I first got a guy to do a shuffle, it was like the seas parted. Yep. And I remember my son when he was very, very young. It's, it's there's only a couple things I can do on the drums, and one of them is at least play a shuffle that sounds passable. And uh, I told, showed him that early on, so he's been playing a shuffle since, yeah, <laughs> since before puberty, and it's paid off. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, what what's your favorite thing to play? And that's without question, I could do it for. You know, every gig, every song, I'd be fine. If that was the only option available to me for the rest of my life, I'd be cool, you know? Yeah. Yes, I'm with and I you. remember, like, realizing, like, listening to music my parents liked and stuff as I became more knowledgeable. Like, wait a minute, this Fleetwood Mac song is a fucking shuffle. Wait a minute, this Journey right. song is a shuffle. This James Brown song is a shuffle. All these freaking Motown right. songs are a shuffle. It started to become clear, like, wait a minute, this isn't just blues. No, 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 the shuffle just is the greatest groove there is, no matter what, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. And then you didn't, as you said, like, you didn't even realize that, oh, yeah, all of these great songs over the years were all shuffles. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, even the uh, that Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mac song, uh, "Don't Don't Stop Living." Don't. Yeah, stop. yeah exactly. Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah, shuffle, shuffle time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mick Fleetwood, man. Well, blues man. You know. That's right. Yeah. All right. When did you feel like 
you started to find your voice on the instrument? Was there a moment when kind of like something clicked and you realized I should go further down this path because this, this I think is me that I'm, I'm tuning into here. Well, uh, I, I think that when, um, one of the things that I always was kind of cognizant of, I think was that, um, is that when you listen to like Clapton and Creamier or Creamier Clapton and, and Hendrix is that, and then you started doing the research of it as far as where they got their different stuff from, is that you realize, well, these guys are influenced by these guys, but yet they do something just a little different. You know what I mean? There's just that little different thing that they do, you know? Uh, and then, you, you know, and everyone has a different stuff. Like, you know, uh, I would kind of say, you know, of, of that variation of that lick we were doing, that thing, you know, it's like, you know, Johnny Winter would do, you know, Stephen Ray Vaughan would do, and Clapton would go, whatever the case may be. So everyone had the same stuff in their wheelhouse, but they just changed it a little bit. And I would take something from somebody and I would try to, to twist it around um, as much as I could early on. Um, I remember, you know, you would ask me back, back in the day what would have been my lick. My favorite thing was to be on the neck pick and go. You get that, you know that. I love that raking neck pickup thing on a Fender guitar. Uh, and so I would start doing stuff like that that I thought, well, that's my s more signature stuff that I do. That's my little group of things that's a variation of the stuff I, of the guys I listen to. Mm. Uh, but I don't think I got to the point where I thought, well, you know, if you hear that guy, it was, it was some, some point in my, when I started writing my more of my original music and stuff when I was in my 20s and mid, mid, you know, early 20s, mid 20s that I thought, well, there's, you know, if you hear that, oh, that's that guy, you know what I mean? And then it, I kind of just went more in that direction. So I would say somewhere when I had, when I was doing my own band, doing my own material, uh, I gradually started to morph the stuff into, um, especially from a blues point of view, you know, like when I would do a blues and be like, oh, that's, that's definitely, it's blues, but it's, it's, a, it's not someone trying to be someone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's, you know an important step always along the way, I guess, of finding our, our shit, especially in blues. It's like when it becomes okay to just be yourself and not just, you know, be Albert King or Stevie or Otis Rush or whatever. And that's hard, man. It's hard to shut that off. And we all know there's a large percentage of guys who don't shut that off ever. <laughs> you know what? It's interesting though, is that I, I, I do see it. Uh, and I'm very enthused about it. I know you play this way and I, I try to play this way as well. And, you know, I saw a really cool, just random video with uh, J.D. Simo the other day playing. Is that there does seem to be a, a group of people who are influenced by, by Roots music that play in a conversational style. You know what I mean? That what they're about to play is influenced by what they just played. And it's part of a conversation mm -hmm. instead of just blitzkrieging licks. You know what I mean? There does seem to be, uh, you know, that, that, that enthuses me. You know what I mean? When I'll see something or be like... Yeah, that's building, a con and you can you can tell right away. It's like no, that's that's it's building, it's it's reacting, it's 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 alive. You know what I mean? Man, I saw a video when I was a kid of BB King with a guitar player that will go nameless as the other side of this equation, 
and but a more like you know a white was dude. it the Barry Finnerty? But no, no, no. But I know that one too. And BB's BB, but the other guy just gets up there and goes, "Here comes your solo." Go da da da, and he goes. And it never stopped. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this dude's standing next to B.B. King. But it was more like clear as day, like, oh, my God, that guy's not telling any story at all. You know, I was probably 13 or something. But it registered like, oh, I cannot let that happen to me. (laughs) You know, you know, like, right. Yeah. Start to tell a story, you know. Yeah. Well, and plus it it makes it fun from a. That's one of the things I harp on all the time if I do a, a Skype lesson with someone and they're like, you know, I'm tired of playing the same licks over and over again. And I'm like, well, just play. You know, licks are just words in your vocabulary. And if you're just garbling up words and throwing them out there and not saying anything with it, it doesn't make any sense. I said, you just got to gotta build it up. And it doesn't really matter how many licks you have. It, you can say something new every time by sticking to this more kind of call and responsey thing at first and building up the conversation. You don't need to play every lick. You don't have to play any licks that you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's one of the things I think it's it's hard for a lot of folks because they build up. They think it's a it's to collect these stunts of which they, you know, want to get in in a, you know, 12 or 24 bar scenario. And it's like, yeah. you don't have to play any of that stuff. You don't want to, if it happens, yeah. cool. But if not, you know, just build the conversation. And that takes that whole, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You yeah. know what I'm talking about. Don't play licks, play music, play a, con- yeah. yeah. You know, it's like watching uh, that video where Jay Graydon talks about that peg solo. And he, he says, besides, you know, how interesting it is, the, the most interesting thing about it is he doesn't play a single lick in the entire solo. It's so random right. and, and improv that there's not a cliche throughout the entire solo. And he said, you don't even know how it happened, but it was like, yeah, that just came out, you know? Yeah, exactly. All right. You know, even, even like, a, even like on a tune, like hot blooded, yeah. I love that guitar solo. I remember yeah, one of the I'm guitar magazines uh, years back were ravaging on it. And I'm like, it's totally random and cool. I love it. Yeah, I agree. You know why? Cause I'm hot blooded. Josh, damn it. I'm hot blooded. Check I'm it. Gonna, and see. I'm not going to check it and see. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Number six. What's your biggest weakness on the guitar, man? Mine is on a session when called for to try to be James Taylor or some sort of articulate acoustic guitar player. That's far and away kryptonite to me. Yeah, I'm I have a hard time with um sticking to like a, a sat um uh arrangement not arrangement but like if i have to play i mean i could play parts but i want to be able to play parts my way you know what mm-hmm. i mean i if if some if you want me to play exactly what's written on the page from beginning to end i can do it but that's not my forte so that's where my weakness with the weakness with the band is i find that i really have to check myself is when i'm playing over uh uh changes that really require you know playing over changes Mm-hmm. Um, that's not like a, a, in the standard jazz phase. Like some tunes of mine, I'll come up with things and they'll have weird changes on them. Yeah. And it's one of those things where 
it's like I have to consciously think of the fact of don't just play over the changes. You got to make it musical. And that, yeah. that's one of the things that I, uh, I work on um, in that it's not important to have to shred over those changes. Just make it musical over those changes. Oh, yeah. Uh, and don't be compelled to show, oh, no, no, I know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's, yeah, I that's one I, of the things that I, I work on. I tell kids all the time, you know, it's not about what you know what to play over each chord. We all know something to play over each chord. We should. We've been playing long enough. It's, man, can right. you make the story continue through those chords without sounding like – you know, you were talking about football and then you're talking about making lemonade. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. You, yeah, exactly that's, my that's point. the exactly. key. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, absolutely. All right. Cool. That's good to know that you, you do have weaknesses. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's a huge influence on your playing that people would be really surprised to hear? Oh, boy, that's interesting. Um, well, you know, one of the things that I, I think gets overlooked a lot is how much your, you know, local guys, you know, when you're growing up influence you. Because, you know, oh, of yeah. course, we get in these situations, well, you know, it's Hendrix and it's B.B. King and it's Everking. But there's guys that you watched in clubs when you were a kid that had huge, a huge impact on you. Uh, and there's uh, a few guys in town here, but one guy was a guy by the name of Bill Stone and we're still buddies. And, and but Bill played in a band... Um, called Leroy Airmaster, and it was a blues band that, um, actually, you know, Junior Brantley was in that band for a while, too. I used to go, and they would pack clubs. So when I've just turned 18 years old, which was drinking age here then, you can go out to clubs when you're 18. And uh, I'd go out and see them play, but they were a blues band, but they had this jazz element. So, and they weren't afraid to mix it up. So Bill would throw in these bebop lines in, in a mix with, with a pretty fat and juicy blues tone. Uh, and the harmonica player, Steve Cohen, who's a buddy of mine, I've done a million gigs with all of these guys now. But uh, And Steve had the same thing. He had these pyrotechnic chops on the harp and could kind of do these bebop lines, but also do the, the real down-home blues thing. And that band was a huge... And, and Bill was a huge influence on me as someone who added this, this real uh, technical ability with uh soulfulness in a way that i thought that that was uh inspiring to me so yeah. i would say that but you know as far as like people i mean i've have, i see things all the time that i just like oh that's cool i think i'll take that um yeah <laughs> uh it, it you know i was listening to i've been watching jubu videos for the last few i mean oh, yeah. i listened yeah. to a bunch of that gospel stuff a while back and then i it's like it, it it's like, I'm doing too much of that stuff. I got to go elsewhere. And then I, that's kind of how I am. I kind of, and then, yeah. but I've been watching some of that and just steal and stealing some cool chord things. And then immediately after I take it, I'm like, I need to switch that around a little bit. And so it's kind of, but I love watching Mateo Sasato's videos. I mm -hmm. think that he really, I mean, there's times where you're just like, what, what was that? I mean, it's just such a blitzkrieg of, of melody and technique. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That you're just yeah. like, that's really cool. So that inspires. So I'll see like a little thing that he might do and be like, that's cool. Uh, so there's there's stuff that happens in that regard, but I see you're, you do stuff all the time. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, same, same. But dude, you're right. It's amazing how the local guys. I mean, these are the guys that are in our purview. So it's like I, right. you know, there was a band. I played in a, in a band every Friday night from age 13 to whatever. 
you know, at this club till four in the morning and every, there was two stages. The other stage would be another band every week. So there was one band where the guy in the band was very, they were kind of Allman Brothers-y, but the guitar player was a jazzer and he was a fusion. He loved Yes too. He was like a big time fusion and jazz guitar player. But he worked at a music store I would go to. And I, I remember him being one of the first guys to like, you know, be kind enough to show me like, hey, let me show you, you know, a chord that you don't know, you know, because you're doing all right already. But he's like, let me let me help you connect some dots. And, you know, that's as equally as big of an influence as the first time that I heard Robin Ford do it. You know what I mean? So, you know, but, but it's personal. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good answer, man. Okay, would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa, a, a great amp and a, and a crappy guitar? Uh, I'd need a good guitar. Any amp you can make work. Uh, but if you, can't, if, if you can't play the guitar, then you're shit out of luck. We're opposite on this. We're, we're the opposites on this one. I, I'm 100% I need the amp, and I'll play any guitar. <laughs> well, you know, but... But that is saying, I need the guitar to stay in tune. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you need the guitar to be playable. But if it has a right. volume knob and works, I know that the audience will get a better show from me with any guitar and like a, a, a rig that I'm comfortable with. Whereas if I have my guitar and a crate with digital reverb and a, you know, a full range speaker in it, I know they're going to get a worse show than the other way around. <laughs> Ah, indeed. I can, yeah. I can relate to both, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, if we're saying guitars that that at least function, <laughs> then, of course, you'd want, you know, an amp. But, I, yeah, if I, I get into situations where I can't do what I do on the guitar, and it's... Uh, right. Uh, then, then, I, then I don't care what I'm plugged into at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see that. I see that. Are you a guy who can pick up a guitar that's set up poorly and hammer through it? Or does it drive you crazy? Do you need a guitar? Let, what? let me let me tell you, when I'm doing those videos at Wildwood, you wouldn't believe the condition of some of those guitars. Because I, I, I play I, them right out of the yeah. box. They're not set up. Yeah. And sometimes they've been sitting for a while. And by the time the end user gets them, they're set up and they're divine and they're great. But there's some times where I'm playing guitars that are worth thousands of dollars and yeah. it's I gotta do everything I possibly can just to make a, you know an open chord sound in tune. Oh, that's yeah. why you know it got to be for a while where people would say well i noticed that you have a tendency to play this tune and this tune when you're playing I'm like that's because i know that there's certain songs i can do that will sound in tune even though the intonation is completely fucked <laughs> yeah it's amazing how that works yeah you, you, you get you're hired to do a job and the last thing you want to do is make the guitar sound like it can't stay in tune <laughs> right exactly yeah. that would be bad <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that one will stay on the shelves, you know. If it, yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, oh, all right. All right. Uh, what, dude? What keeps you like? I keep hearing you add new things, and you just talked about you. You watch this guy. What keeps you so motivated to like keep getting better every day? Is just because you just it's never changed like the passion you love it so much, or is there something else that that keeps you driven? Uh, I just love love playing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's never gets boring to me. It's like, uh, you know, like, um, it's amazing what will be inspiring to me. Like I, I, I turned on that, uh, uh, cause I remembered, um, 
someone mentioning Jubu Smith to me again. I think it was Mateo Sasato. And, yeah. and that stuck in my mind. I was like, man. Meanwhile, let me let me tell you that, just preface this, that I turned Mateus on to Jubu. He'd never heard of him. And I, I, I said, dude, you already, you have to be listening to this guy. And I played him the Jubu's greatest hits at Nam two years ago in our hotel room. So. But- <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so I, I just turned on some uh, a video of him doing uh, uh, Thrill is Gone at some club in St. Louis. Oh, that video is ridiculous. And, and I was like, I'll take that. I'll take that. And, and that to me is, you know, then you get excited about stuff because it's like, when you listen to, to that style of playing, it's so different from any of the shit we grew up listening to. You know what I mean? Oh, so different. Yeah. And, and it's just inspiring. It's like, I'm going to check that out and throw that in and see what yeah. happens. And so that's a lot of fun. But th- that's kind of it for me. It's like I'm always trying to refine uh, and, and keep it interesting for me because I know that if I'm constantly learning stuff and, and, and then when I'm doing these guitar things demos or playing my own stuff or just doing a live stream whatever the case may be um then my enthusiasm will hopefully trans you know uh transfer to the individual watching so yeah uh i'm always just you know there's just little things i'm just i'm more or less kind of trying to refine stuff as i as i get older it's like mm-hmm. um most of the stuff I, I have a tendency to listen to is, is pretty simple uh i like i like simple stuff um i appreciate complexity and i like to engage in complexity every now and again but i would say the vast majority of stuff i like to listen to is groovy and is um and is relatively simple yeah and so what i'm trying to do is trying to you know reviewing a lot of my past i mean one of the things that uh um the quarantine thing has done is that you know it's maybe kind of look past it like man i got all these records there's a lot of tunes i never played live because i just recorded them for a record and kind of looking back at that stuff and saying, well, how would I do that now? And what would I do different? And so I'm finding these nuggets of things where I'm maybe, you know, uh, refining them now in retrospect and uh, trying to just, as I said, refine my voice as an instrumentalist and as a band leader. And and now that I kind of have a template with, you know, with my son on drums and with Toby that I think is really kind of the perfect vehicle for what I do in a lot of ways. Yeah um it's it's it is that's inspiring as well and trying to figure out how do i take some of the best of the stuff that i've done in the past that maybe didn't get you know the proper um um not notice but uh, maybe i didn't work them as much as as i could have done in the past now it's got a whole new life in this different format so um i'm trying to add some of these newer techniques and refinements to some of that stuff and so nice. I just never get bored doing it. And if I'm around, I'm sure you're the same way. If I get a chance where I'm playing guitar and, and you know, maybe get the looper out or you know, what, it could be something weird as like getting a phaser pedal. I got my phaser pedal out and I was like, I was born anew. And <laughs> yeah, next thing you know, you lose an hour, you know, it just. Absolutely. Yeah. It, hours yeah. just melt away. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for the fact that that love of just, just playing is just always it's it's the most fun thing that I do as far. I mean, I don't really have. I'm sure you're the same. I don't have hobbies. You know, I, mean, I don't bowl. <laughs> right. I don't. You know, I don't. You know, I don't play darts. You know, I used to play pool, but I don't have any. I mean, I like to hang out with my fam and eat and play guitar. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I do. That's it for me. And watch sports while I eat. You know, but that's it, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it is. 
Uh, and for anybody who doesn't know Jubu Smith, you need to go look him up because he's a legend. So if, if this was a new name to you, go find it. Here's a yes. little Jubu story. So when I moved to L.A., I knew nothing about that world, but I'd obviously heard his guitar playing on tons of R&B songs over the year it's because right. he's a legendary session guitar player. So anyways, the first blues jam I go to in L.A. is at this place, Cozy's in the Valley, which doesn't exist anymore. And Jubu's in there, and we end up playing together, maybe on the, my first ah. thing ever. And he was so nice to me, and we end up talking and, he, and becoming friends, and he's like, he, he, he tells me now he always appreciated that I treated him, you know, like he knew what he was talking about in the blues because in his world, they hated, they weren't into blues. So, and he wanted to be, you know, accepted in the blues world. But anyways, flash forward a few years, we're friends. And I almost kind of knew he was Jubu, but I, it, it didn't all like, you know, click. I get the gig with Raphael Sadiq and you know, the music Raphael's playing at the time is more Motown and Stax, which is right up my alley. But, of course, he comes from right. Tony, 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 and Jubu played on all those records. So I had to learn all Jubu's parts. And I remember calling ah. him and being like, you motherfucker. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm learning your parts. But it was another world of just a kind of guitar I'd never learned or studied, you know. And it was, you know, it was just inspiring stuff. Jubu's, he's a bad motherfucker. Oh, man. Just crazy. Yeah. Crazy, right. tasty, but yet wild yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, dude. And, and so influential over his scene. People don't realize the level of impact he had on a generation of guitar players right. from that world. I mean, he is the godfather of that stuff. Yeah. So, anyways. That's crazy. Number I 10. Love it. Dude, yes, where do you want to be in five years? Where do you see yourself going? Is it just playing more with the trio and pushing along the lines you're at, or do you have some grander schemes in mind? Uh, you know, what? what's interesting is um, um, I really don't have any um, – I mean, it sounds weird to say, but I, I don't have any uh, delusions of grandeur. <laughs> I, I, not I anymore. Do... You had them, but not anymore. Not... Right, exactly, exactly. They were definitely in play at some point in time. Uh, but for me, like what you just said, is like if I could go out uh, and tour meaningfully with the band and, um, you know, maybe just step up a rung where it's like, you know, I can play a nice uh, showcase club or small theater in every major city uh, that I want to and have people show up that dig it and, you know, I'd be able to to do that a couple times a year where I go out and be able to make a sufficient amount of money from just doing that. Yeah. Uh, that would be fantastic. I, I know that I, I like to be able to do all the different things because I don't like to have to lean on one particular thing. But if, if I would say one thing that I uh, would like to have just go up of and, and, the, and the thing is, is that we were starting to do that mm. Um with the trio, um, we were right before COVID hit, and you know, we get, finally got this really good you know, booking agency, really good guys, uh, and we just started booking clubs where you know we could go in and you know in any any town really per se, and as long as they got the word out, we got a decent amount of people in, so we made mm -hmm. decent dough, and then the merch was always good. So yeah, I could see that just kind of growing to the point where you know maybe we're we're touring around where we can afford to bring another person. That was... yeah, 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 yeah. 
yeah. that might help out, maybe with the driving, maybe with the selling of merch. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's it. I mean, just to be able to play my own music um, in and uh, have it go up to the level where, you know, uh, Toby and Dylan are making a fine living from being involved in it, and yeah. um, and we can go out and do the stuff. And you know, we've talked about doing more stuff together. Man, that to me is is like the funnest is where you can go out with musicians that are friends of yours and have a great musical experience and. You know, they bring their crowd in, you bring her, but the crowds are all the same. They're, everyone yeah. digs it, yeah. and there's a camaraderie, and you get to see the world. You eat great food, yeah, and um, and repeat. <laughs> it's amazing how you know simple and you know grounded the goals are that we have. It's like we're not asking to be millionaires, you know, and, right. and be on buses and private jets. No, it's can I just play my own music? And make enough right. money to play it with the guys I want to play it with and have everybody be yes. smiling and happy to be there? That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you know? It doesn't seem like too much to ask for. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, and of course, what's really bizarre at this point, of course, with the whole, you know, COVID thing is uh, will any of the old paradigm that we're talking about elevating and <laughs> be left? You know what I mean? It's I like, know. what's. What's going to be, I mean, I'm sure, you know, uh, as we've had to do our entire career, we'll pivot and adapt to do whatever we got to do. Yep. Uh, but I'm doing uh, it right know, now. We're doing it exactly. right now. Exactly. You're doing this. You know, I, we were talking the other day about the whole YouTube thing and how, you know, we've got these videos that are on all these different YouTube channels that have hundreds of thousands, collectively millions of views. But, you know, our own, our own on YouTube pages we've kind of let neglect and then you realize the amount of money that people are making from from the yeah. YouTube videos you're like well we should probably get that going a little bit yes <laughs> yeah so thank you for helping me create my oh, world my domination pleasure. I quite appreciate it uh, my pleasure <laughs> and dude thank thank you for doing this uh, for the members we're gonna do another video uh, called turn two if you've seen any of these yet which you haven't because i'm new to this but uh we're gonna teach two licks but greg man you are truly a great friend and a hero and i just want to thank you for this conversation hopefully people get something out of it i don't really give a shit i i enjoyed the conversation and uh, thank <laughs> well, you thanks for having me i really appreciate it you're a magnificent guitar beast and a good buddy <laughs> right back at you man all right hang on <laughs>